Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Luke Roloffs. Luke is a philosopher of mind at the Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness at New York University. Although Luke works primarily on philosophy of mind and metaphysics, their areas of interest include ethics, social and political philosophy, early modern philosophy, and the philosophy of gender and sexuality. Look out for their book, Reason, Empathy, and the Minds of Others, which is under contract with Oxford University Press. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the nearly 70 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you're a new subscriber. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. We're on Twitter, Reddit, Quora, Discord, Telegram, Instagram, Facebook, and most other places. You'll be made welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Luke. How are you? I'm very good. Good morning, Jamie. It's great to talk to you. I'm a few coffees ahead of you, given the times, but... I'll work on catching up. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining this series of sentientist conversations. We've only Thank ever spoken online so far. So you've been in our uh, sentientism Facebook group and you joined our I'm a sentientist sure. war quite a while ago. And we've had a few chats yeah. online. So it's great to have the chance to have a proper conversation yeah. with you. Um, something like face to face. Yeah, it's as close as we'll get for the moment. The best available alternative at the moment. Exactly. And maybe when we're allowed to travel and you come back to your North London routes, we could uh, meet up in person. Indeed. Yeah. So as we talked about before, this series of conversations are what about what I think of as the two deepest and most important philosophical questions. What's real and what matters? And I have a clear bias because I'm trying to frame as this very simplistic, pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which says... When it comes to thinking about what's real, we should have a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. And when it comes to what matters, the clue is in the name. We should have compassion. We should care about any being that is sentient that has the capacity to experience suffering or flourishing. But in these conversations, as ever, I'm talking to people who agree and disagree with that point of view. So it'll be fascinating to hear your personal story. But before we get to those questions, how would you best introduce yourself and your work? I'm Luke Roloffs. I'm a academic philosopher. I'm currently working as a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness at NYU. For non-academics, that means I'm early to middle stage of my career between grad student and professor. Most of my research focuses around consciousness. You could roughly treat it as synonymous with sentience, both around the metaphysics, what it is, how it works, how it arises, and also around the epistemology of it, how we can know about other things and their experiences their conscious minds. And, and recently, I've been particularly studying how the epistemology connects to the ethical significance, running with the thought that the way that you know other minds has to involve some level of empathy. And that's part of why uh, we should act with empathy. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. And, and given your focus, the idea of sentientism as a worldview is neutral on what actually sentience is and the theory of mind and the philosophy of mind. I have my own views, but given it's so central to the philosophy, it would be great to get your sense of what this thing is that we're grounding uh, this worldview on. But also, as you said, the link between the epistemology and what that means for our moral stance is absolutely central to these conversations. So yeah, it's going to be fascinating to dig into that a bit with you. 
Um, yeah, I, I like this jokey tongue-in-cheek remark one of my supervisors here, Ned Block, made when he said, if someone asks me what is consciousness, I say something like what a famous jazz musician said when asked what is jazz. If you have to ask, I can't tell you. You can only understand it if you already on some level know it because you have it. That is something like the condition in which we necessarily find ourselves. It's the state that we're in whenever we're aware of anything. And every possible version or variation or permutation of states like that is roughly what I would, I mean, that's not really a full definition, but it's a gesture at why you can't exactly give one. Yeah, certainly hard to pin down. And people have spent many decades and many centuries trying to do just that. But the first question I like to ask is that really basic question of what's real and how can we go about understanding the universe and the world. So for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up originally in a sort of quite naturalistic, scientific, atheistic, agnostic type society, context and family, or whether it was more supernatural and spiritual and maybe religious, and how their philosophy has shifted over time, if it has, on that sort of epistemological side of things. So you can wind the clock back as far as you're comfortable, but it'd be fascinating to know your personal story there. Sure. So my my upbringing was never particularly religious. I think it also didn't push me in a strongly anti-religious direction, in part because I didn't have that much contact with people who were you know, ardently or rigidly attached to particular religious worldviews. I, honestly, I spent more time with very modern Christians who were very concerned to persuade me that you don't have to believe anything that seems unreasonable to you. And we don't have to argue over the finer point of biblical interpretation. We can act in the vaguer spirit of how we interpret Jesus's ethos. I think as a teenager, I actively sought out more forthright and rigid expressions of religion in part because I wanted to dig into, is this actually a set of ideas that has significant implications or that I need to worry about the implications of? I think I've, I've probably been an atheist in a fairly convinced way for since I was, I don't know, 14. I think reasons that are not particularly unusual. A lot of people realize that there's, there's very little evidential weight in the specific claims of religious revelation, you know, the particular textual claims of the Bible or, or other religious texts mm. don't provide a particularly compelling argument for anything. And so if you just step back and look at the universe, and try to infer where did this come from? The idea that you know that the entire universe was contrived by a benevolent being is not the the natural interpretation. It's not at all the hypothesis that seems supported by the very morally mixed character of existence, nor by the fact that, as far as we can tell, the great majority of existence is is neither good nor bad. It's just dust in space. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess compounded with that, again, as, as a teenager, I spent a fair bit of time trying to dig up the odysseys, trying to engage with the work that religious philosophers have, have put in to, to explain why the world is so morally imperfect, why there's so much suffering, why things are so unfair. And they'll say things like, oh, it's somehow traceable to humans having been given free will, or it's somehow traceable to the need for suffering to ennoble or, or strengthen our souls in preparation for some afterlife, or it's something that we just shouldn't try to understand because God is beyond us and, and moves in mysterious ways. Ineffable. And ineffable, yes. And not only did 
it all seem unconvincing at the level of rational argument. It also, as I got older, became uncomfortably reminiscent of like the excuses that people make for abuse. It sounded like these cosmic versions of, oh, you deserved it, or yeah. you know, this person, it doesn't matter, or it will be better for them in the long run, it's all for their own good, or how who are you to question? And yeah, and so I guess this is just to connect this to the the ethical side of life. I feel like when people are people understood here very broadly to include non-humans. When people are, are suffering, one thing you can do is to say, yeah, this is bad. They are suffering. This is a genuinely like regrettable and unfortunate situation and we have to do something about it. Yeah. And there's a temptation that I think a lot of people have psychologically to find a reason why it's not actually so bad. Psychologists sometimes talk about the just world bias, that our tendency to 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 prefer to to see the world as basically fair and to see bad things as in some way deserved or necessary. And I, I think that tendency is something that we have to resist, but it's also something that is present both at the level of the highly abstract theology and at the level of a personal judgments and reactions of individuals. Does, does that more or less answer the no, question? No, that's a, that's a fascinating answer because it sounds like there was there's an epistemological side to that of you were almost presented with a, a fairly amorphous, nice version of religion and you wanted to actually find the something to properly grapple with and found that, mm. I guess, wanting because of the evidence. And that's interesting because there are some religious people who will claim their belief is naturalistically grounded and they will talk about the evidence and the reasoning process they've gone through and so on. And frankly, I find all of that evidence and all of that reasoning deeply unconvincing for fairly obvious reasons. Mm. We don't need to rehearse that. But it does seem to me that most religious people don't actually claim a naturalistic basis for their beliefs. They're, they're often quite proud of the fact, and sometimes this is actually central, that they believe despite the lack of evidence and reasoning, it is an article of, of faith independent. And in, in a way, while I find the people with a supernatural worldview who claim a naturalistic basis somewhat frustrating because we disagree radically over the quality of their evidence and the robustness of their evidence and the credence they grant, at least you can engage with them in some way. Whereas if someone has abandoned evidence and reason and said it is an article of faith in a sense that is the end of the conversation so yeah it's an, that's an interesting aspect i think is how epistemology and supernaturalism relate yeah faith is an interesting word and an interesting concept particularly because it's so closely connected to, to words like trust to be faithful yeah. to someone or something is is not it's not in its primary sense a matter of believing one thing or another, but of the way that you exist in a relationship to someone, the way that you, yeah. you hold to a relationship. And so my, my suspicion is that for, for a lot of people, their religious affiliations or their non-religious affiliations are primarily driven by relationships, by who your family, the group that you found, the group that would take you in when no one else would, or the group that made you feel at home when you felt like you didn't belong, or the, the cultural history that, that gives you a, a sense of, of heritage. Mm. And it's wanting to, to, to feel like you're keeping up your end of some somewhat amorphous bargain. And conversely, I think for a lot of people, you know, atheism is about rejecting some social milieu or some family or some social group. And not to, not to say anything disparaging about reason and evidence, but I think for a lot of the time with 
human behavior and human beliefs, it's a, a secondary factor. It's, yeah. it's not the, the driving motive, a lot of what people do and think. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I, and I, I think you're absolutely right that we might like to pretend we're super rational and naturalistic, but actually that sense of relationship and community connectedness and being in the world with others is at least as important. And in a way, you could argue that maybe the people who've you know, taken a more traditional route recognize that more openly. This is just my culture. This is just the way we are. This is, you know, they're, they're almost not making a claim to a rational way of thinking, whereas actually quite a lot of the rationalists and the atheists and the you know, agnostics maybe overstate how rational we really are and, and underweight the importance of those social connections. You know? And I think it, 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 part of the reason I quite like the term naturalist is because it's naturalistic is because it's so broad. It's not a narrow sort of scientific method. It's not naturally, it's not narrowly rationalistic. I think to be a good naturalist, you have to be skeptical of your own evidence and of your own reasoning and quite often i think we forget to do that yeah so that's really interesting yeah. but the the other aspect you touched on was important and i the parallels you drew towards i guess abusive situations in the real world i think is really cuts to the heart of one of those challenges because i think if you read most of the religious texts and did a classic psychological analysis of the deities portrayed within you wouldn't come out with a very sympathetic diagnosis of most of them. And I think you're right. There are some of those themes of power and pressure and dynamics and come through very strongly. And it's interesting because the, I guess, the sort of modern Christian people you encountered were reflecting very much some of the good elements of a religious worldview that have, you know, compassion and a sort of universal concern and flowing through them. But at the same time, as you said, quite often that compassion is only universal to a certain point, right? Uh, only really to an in-group and often to an in-group that obeys certain laws. So it, that compassion, while it can, is, is often very genuine and very rich, often gets you know, constrained or conditional and the penalties can be, the theoretical penalties can be pretty brutal if you don't comply or if you're in the out-group. Yeah, it's an interesting mix. There's good and, good and bad, which I guess you could say of a naturalistic morality too. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the, it seems that your, as we'll come on to this topic of, you know, what matters morally, uh, given that context and the journey you went through, you were never really in a position where you were relying on a religious or a supernatural worldview for any moral grounding or any particular moral guidance. So some of my guests, actually, that was part of the challenge of moving away from a religious worldview is that they needed to almost reformulate their ethics to find something else that wasn't about obedience or compliance or concordance with the wishes of a deity, whatever it was, if they felt a gap and they almost had to rebuild. I get the sense that you never went through that challenge because it was never really part of your moral grounding. But is it possible to explain again, whether it's a, a story from your youth or even currently, given a naturalistic way of thinking, yeah. how do you ground ethics if you do? So, yeah, so that, that's very true that I didn't go through this process of having an ethical worldview that was founded on certain beliefs, which I then knocked out like support and had to, to find something to rebuild. It has been a little bit more, I think my ethical views substantially have remained pretty constant for most of my life. Around when I was, I think, 13 or 14, I went vegan. I actually went vegetarian first. There was this annoying other student at school who, who was not vegetarian, but made a point of, of bringing up the inconsistency as he saw it and I also saw it between 
being vegetarian but not vegan. So I was like, well, fine, just to spite you, I'm going to be vegan. I guess the question of what underlies, you know, what provides the foundation is something that I have been circling around in some ways ever since. I do think that there's something I want to stress that I don't think. I, I didn't feel like until I answer this question, I'm like house built on sand and that my moral commitment will just drop away. Like sometime, I, I sometimes try to ask myself, okay, of the different things I believe, if I didn't believe this thing, would that change what I thought about this other thing? And most changes in my beliefs, I think, wouldn't hugely affect my moral beliefs because uh, morality is, to a certain extent, kind of an autonomous domain of reasoning. And the way that we reason to one conclusion or another within that domain is largely, I think, independent of, of what's going on in many other domains. But I, I do hope and I do think that there's a way of connecting that to other domains. And my work at the moment, a, a book that I'm actually working on, tries to do that by looking at the epistemology of imagination. So the thought, to, to put it very roughly, it goes something like this. When I imagine in a way that is self-consciously accurate, that is constrained by the other things I know and is trying to accurately visualize or recreate or simulate some situation or state of affairs, that can teach me things. It can you know, give me new information, it can lead me to new beliefs, and it can also, I think, give me good reasons for or against a certain action. So a simple example of this would be if I'm trying to decide whether to go to a party tonight and I'm on the fence and I might try to imagine what is it going to be like when I'm at the party. You know, I try to put myself in that future situation to simulate the experience that I expect I will have, you know, again, trying to be as accurate as possible. And if I end up simulating a pleasant experience, if I think, well, I, this, this is a lot of fun, and maybe it's hard to get into the swing, but once I'm there, I'll be having a good time, that seems to give me a, a good reason to go. That seems to bear on what it makes sense for me to do in the here and now. Conversely, if I uh, imagine a horrible experience that I, I don't like and I dislike, I should take that as a reason to not go. Yeah, you're almost um, running an, emulate, an emulation of your future self and then looking at the results. And I think the same uh, applies with other people. So when I'm simulating what it is like to be someone else, and the simple version, again, is I'm considering taking some action that I know is going to have some effect on someone else. If I put myself in their shoes and I try to think, well, what is that going to be like for them if I do this? If I find that it's an unpleasant thing that I imagine, then that gives me a reason not to do it. If I find that it's a pleasant thing, that gives me a reason to do it. And if you take that and you generalize that, you think about not just the particular imaginative simulations that I do on particular occasions, but all of the minds that I could simulate. Again, going back to this thought that for something to have a mind is for it to be the kind of thing that I could imagine being the sort of thing that has a point of view. And you add up, try, try to approximate all the reasons that you would get from doing all of these imaginings. The upshot is going to be something approximating, do what makes the most sentient beings happy or best satisfies the, the desires and wishes of the greatest number of sentient beings and avoid doing things that, that harm them or that frustrate their desires. So that's my current kind of attempt yeah. to to sketch out a naturalistic grounding for, for morality as I see it. That's fascinating. And I think the, none of that emulation, none of that imagination can, in a way, 
is likely to ever be perfect. It's always going to oh, have a degree not. of, you know, probabilistic relationship. Even emulating your future self, you often make mistakes. It's clear that we'll do that as we try and do the same thing for other minds. But I, I, that's a fascinating way of uh, using imagination as a way into empathizing and, I guess, valuing the experiences of, of others. And I'd probably echo in my personal view, th that sort of way of thinking, because in a sense, you could argue morality is it's just a choice. It's a choice of whether to care about others in a sense. And you could say in a way that's somewhat arbitrary, but I would argue that almost definitionally a naturalistic morality is that decision to care about others. So if you've decided not to care about others, you're just deciding not to be moral. I guess there's a sort of definitional link there. And although you might see it as arbitrary and something that in practical terms we do construct, we have an evolutionary basis for our morality that as humans was our starting point, And then we've used our brains to refine and enhance and to do lots of different thinking about what that morality might be that will change our decisions. It is still linked to those other domains. As you said, it's it maybe not, it's, it's maybe not completely a hundred percent locked in. Maybe there is still some sort of is or distinction that we need to be aware of. It is still a choice, but it can be naturalistically grounded. And I really like that way of doing it. My common sense way of saying a similar thing is I don't like suffering. I'm pretty sure you don't like suffering either. Mm -hmm. And morality is just my decision to, to care about that. But maybe it's a common yeah, sense way of getting to a similar sort of place. But Absolutely. And I, I am trying to, in particular, so to tie, by tying morality to the rational process of simulating mind, including my own future mind, mm. and more broadly to the way that we can instance simulate will this shape fit into this other shape if i rotate it by imagining it turn i guess what i'm the, the form of grounding i'm going for is something like it's not a, a free choice because it flows from the the methodological procedures that are built into just being rational in general trying to reason about what to do you know what it's trying to reason about what is true trying to reason about your own best interests and there's still a sense in which you could say what if i just don't care about any of that what if i don't yeah. care what's true what if i don't care about my own interests or your interests but it's at that point i think you've shown as much as you possibly could show because obviously any argument will fail against someone who says what if i just don't care about logical consistency what if i don't yeah. care about good arguments and bad arguments Exactly. And I think if someone says my morality is just the choice not to care about anything at all, they, I think they've redefined what morality means to such an aggressive extent. It's hard to even engage with. And you can do that to any word and any concept. But again, almost what's the point of having the conversation if you can't even agree on those basics? Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, sorry, go ahead. I was going to link to a re related question. But so if there was something else you wanted to fill in there, feel free to. Add. I guess just, yeah, on the. The evolution of morality. So I, I think the evolution of morality is a really interesting topic because it looks like there was this explosion of human intelligence a few million years ago, a sudden kind of explosive growth of the neocortex and so on. And a lot of current hypotheses are that the reason for this, the driving force was social intelligence, often construed in quite a Machiavellian way, that it's a kind of arms race where if the other primates in your troop have got a bit smarter, then they could trick you out of food or safety or whatever social opportunities. Mm. So you have to get a bit smarter to outwit them. But then that means that they, have, they are under selective pressure to get even smarter. And if I'm right about the way that morality relates to imagination, then 
the capacity to be empathically motivated is actually a side effect of this. It's not what was selected for, but it, what was selected for was the ability to accurately gauge what is this other person going to do by putting myself in their shoes. Yeah. Um, and that tendency to, to, to put myself in their shoes so much that I start hoping they do well for their own sake would be a, yeah, a side effect in something like the way that we didn't evolve to be good at mathematics. We evolved to tell when there's more food in one spot than in another. But we seem to have developed this remarkable mathematical kind of edifice of learning. And I think that edifice is, is real and, and true and valuable, even though in, in evolutionary terms, it's a, a side effect yeah. of something else. Yeah. And it's interesting with the, because the, the last um, episode I just released was was with the primatologist Franz Naval. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation, partly because he spent most of his life understanding and explaining to the world exactly that, the evolution of morality and that non-humans have you know, surprisingly rich modes of behavior, but also proto-morality too. And he, the story he su mentioned suggested a, a, another potential cause for some of that stuff, which is about maternal care amongst mm -hmm. non-humans that had a fairly narrow reproductive strategy. So there was something about the, the parents, particularly the mother's motivation to make sure that the offspring were well cared for. That was another potential source of that empathy and that caring for others. But I think you're, you're right. There's absolutely some Machiavelli Machiavellian, um, you know, in-group, out-group, alpha male, you know, dominant, dominance seeds for that capability as well. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that is it always strikes me is that the a lot of the evolutionary adaptations that like define the groups that we're members of are all about maternal investment. We're mammals, yeah. that is, we produce milk, and we're placental mammals, that is, we have this particular organ for connecting up the maternal and fetal bloodstreams. This is influenced like the way that we develop teeth. There's all of this stuff about like brain size and hip width, and the importance of caring for the young. I think has really been at the center of human evolution and mammalian evolution and is almost certainly a big source of a lot of the resources that we currently draw on for our broader social lives. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating field. And one of the other interesting challenges here, because I think you, know, you and I would share roughly as this sense that our morality is grounded in really an appreciation of and a concern for the suffering and the flourishing of other beings that are sentient to have that capacity to have a point of view. And I think many people around the world would agree with us in an intuitive sense. Suffering is bad, doesn't sound like a radical statement, but most people around the planet do still radically constrain that moral consideration, at least in practical terms. And you've already touched on the fact that at quite an early stage, 13, 14, you were going through that process of recognizing it wasn't just humans that could suffer and therefore it wasn't just humans that could matter morally. And I'm interested in why did you come to that view? How did you come to that view? And was that a difficult process for you to go through socially, intellectually, emotionally? Yeah, I think I was always predisposed to, to go through that process at some point because I've always been an animal lover in a lot of ways. Both I've always been very fond of individual animals that I've lived with and very interested in animals in general, as, a, as something to study, as something to learn about, as something to engage with. And I think I had been inarticulately aware that there was something weird about eating animals, taking dead flesh and putting it in your mouth from quite a young age. But it was then it was, yeah, it was around my teenage years that I really thought about that systematically and thought, does this require me to change my behavior? Does this stand up to scrutiny? 
And I, I found that not only does it stand up to scrutiny, but basically nothing else does. There's no, I don't think that there's any clear line that can be drawn that will separate humans from animals in a way that is, that seems like it ought to be morally compelling. Yeah. There are, of course, certain traits that, that the great majority of humans have, at least at some stage in their lives, that animals lack. Things like self-awareness and language use and, and reasoning. And I do think that those matter morally to some extent. I think that those affect the types of moral consideration that are being owed. That's why adult humans have rights to autonomy uh, that animals and children uh, don't have. But I don't think that unseats or supersedes the more basic question about suffering and flourishing. And I don't think that any property that, that neatly demarcates humans from animals is going to do that. Although I did become aware there were problems internal to the view that I, the, the sentientist views that I ended up with, particularly around the, the theme of equality and equal worth or equal status. Because I, I don't want to say that a human life and a mosquito life are of equal value. I want to say that they both have some degree of value, but I, I, I want to be able to, to keep, when necessary, killing mosquitoes to save human lives. But in between mosquitoes and, and me, the, there's a kind of a, a scale of very gradual changes in which you can imagine different beings, human or animal, at various levels with different degrees of longevity, complexity of experience, intensity of experience, complexity of thought. And the question of like, how do you rank or like how do you trade off different degrees of value against one another is one that I think is like genuinely hard, possibly one that I you know, there may not be a, a single right answer. It may just be that like the universe has given us a difficult question to do our best at muddling through. So I don't want to suggest that, that the sentientist orientation I came to is an unproblematic moral stance, but I think it is the one that minimizes arbitrary divisions and arbitrary lines. Yeah. And part of the reason I've been framing sentientism as a way of setting our moral scope, just the boundary, is partly to avoid some of those challenges and those difficult challenges because in a way it says you have to have moral consideration for all sentient beings but it doesn't tell you whether or not you can then grade moral value how to trade off different interests even whether you should take a you know utilitarian or a consequentialist or a deontological or a virtue ethics whatever your moral system ethical system is you could still apply that as long as you grant moral meaningful moral consideration to all sentient Mm -hmm. beings so in a way it's a bit um cheeky because it ducks out of all of the difficult problems mm. and, and focuses on setting the boundary. But I think in a way it's a cop-out, right? But I think it's useful to have a pluralistic, very broad baseline that many people could agree with as well. But I do think setting that baseline and setting that scope of moral consideration is actually the most important thing to do and the mistake that causes the most egregious harm at the moment. Because when we look at topics like animal farming, for example, that isn't a question of people cleverly trading off different degrees of Mm -hmm. sentience and moral value. It's that in practical terms, those farmed animals are completely excluded from any meaningful moral consideration. Because to my mind, if you are willing to needlessly harm and kill an entity, almost by definition, you have no practical moral consideration for them. If you treated a human that way and said, oh no, I still have moral consideration for the human, for my victim, you would be laughed at and probably locked up. So in a sense, that setting the boundary to me is important, but I completely agree there's such a world of complexity and genuinely difficult problems that philosophers will, con- you know, will continue to fight over for many years. 
Yeah, and I, I do, I think, largely agree that many of these questions are ones that are, you know, interesting and, and deep philosophically mm. and that arise in relatively specific practical circumstances. In, the, in bioethics, the various situations where, you know, like maybe you do have to choose between yeah. allowing you know, one person here to die definitely versus something that will increase the odds of more people living somewhere else. For most practical purposes, actually, these lines all, all largely tend to converge. So I think this is particularly clear, for instance, with the way that if you believe in that morality only should be concerned with human life, if you believe that morality should only be concerned with animal life, if you believe that morality should be concerned with ecological holes, these all give you strong reason to uh, want to minim minimize climate change. And one really good way to do that is to substantially reduce animal farming, because that's such a, such a big contributor, both in, term in terms of direct emissions, in terms of land use so yeah. on. I'm realizing now, having said that, I think I'm actually making this point that maybe slightly undermines what you were going for. You were going for all of the complex, complicated questions, practically not as important as the one really important question, which is which things get consideration. And I just pointed out a way in which actually you can fudge which things get consideration and end up at a, a practical point of agreement. Um, so I apologize. No, not at all. I think that's a fair point. And I, I think that in a way that can almost be the flip side of this setting a broad moral boundary, because it also means you can focus on some really obvious win-win solutions mm -hmm. rather than we can still work out the difficult trade-offs, but there are some actual win-win sol solutions which work whether or not you have a sort of ecocentric perspective, a sentientist perspective, or even an anthropocentric one. I think there are some things it would make sense for all of those three different groups to agree on. And it, it's one thing that's very clear is you are a pretty hard-edged philosophical mind, even at 13, 14, both in your, your thinking about the transition away from a religious way of thinking and also yeah. determined, I've done the thinking, I'm now going vegan. I, I think I was, yeah, maybe psychologically a little atypical. I had philosophy books instead of social skills. So yeah, I think arguments led to behavior changes. And I think that I get the impression that that's not all that common among more normal people. It's quite common amongst my guests on this uh, conversation, conversation. Um, not pervasive, but yeah, sadly, it's not that common amongst the rest of the human population. If only that were, that were true. And I think that's one thing we'll come back to later in the conversation when we think about, you know, how can we make the world a, pl a better place given the weirdness of human psychology. Mm -hmm. But one, one of the other aspects I'm interested in challenging with you is a lot of people look at a sentiocentric or a sentientist worldview and say, look, you've gone too far. We need to focus on humans and our companion animals, let's exclude the others. And you and I, I think, would clearly reject that on this basis that those non-human sentients have a capacity to suffer and to flourish, and that matters morally as well. But there's another challenge, which again, you've touched on already, which is some people look at a sentientist worldview and say, look, you're not going far enough. And in fact, the first time I think the word sentientist was used seriously was by a chap called John Rodman, who was saying, look, this is just another form of discrimination. Right? You're only privileging sentient beings. What about all the non-sentient entities? And I think he was coming from a, I'm not sure if it's a biocentrist or an ecocentrist point of view, but he was saying actually non-sentient things matter morally too. What would your, what's your perspective on whether and how stuff can matter beyond sentience? So this is one of the places I think where, where my metaphysics is maybe impinging the most on my ethics, because mm. so I don't actually think there is anything outside sentience broadly construed. So 
in some of my work, I've defended panpsychism, the idea mm. that not only are humans conscious in a very, very complex and sophisticated way and animals conscious in various more or less sophisticated ways, but actually all things are, are conscious you know, in exact proportion to their physical complexity, down to even the, the simplest physical things, which have some sort of unimaginably simple conscious state, again, just paralleling, indeed identical to uh, the very simple physical characteristics. And so this means that I don't really have a very simple thing I can say about, yeah, biocentrism versus ecocentrism yeah. versus sentientism. Because in a sense, you don't think there's really a distinction because you think the bio stuff, the living things, plants and so on, and the, the non-living elements of our ecosystem in the ecocentric are actually all in some sense sentient as well. So in a sense, your only choice is really around anthropocentrism or sentientism because you think everything is sentient. In a sense. Yeah. Yes. Although really, I guess what it does is it refocuses us on a, a debate that I think was actually the first thing we were uh, talking about a bit online mm. between what Dave Chalmers here at NYU has called broad and narrow sentientism, where broad sentientism is the idea that like the focus of moral status or moral value is consciousness per se of any sort, whereas narrow sentientism People will define it in different ways, but it's, it's something like they did as a particular sort of consciousness that is the real focus of, of moral value. And usually people will say suffering or the capacity to be happy or yeah. unhappy, what is something called affective valence. Can your states feel good or bad? Yeah. And I, I, I recall what, what you initially said was that unless you're a panthist, it doesn't matter all that much in practice because on most, most people kind of natural assumptions about what things are conscious, it's going to be roughly coextensive with what things are capable of pleasure and suffering. So my inclination is towards something a bit more like narrow sentientism. Yeah. Although I, I recognize that the category isn't an unpleasant, it's something that may start to say at the edges as we get into more and more alien minds. And I actually think that we may have a better intuitive grip on which things can have pleasure and suffering than on which things are conscious per se. Again, going back to this claim I've been adverting to about the centrality of, of empathy, that I understand other minds by reference to my own mind, which means that I'm going to have the easiest time understanding minds to the extent that they have particular sorts of mental state that I've also had. Mm. And so my, my kind of working idea is that we have at least the potential to intuitively recognize when a being is in any of the particular sorts of mental states that we're in, which would include things like suffering and, and, and pleasure, happiness. It's just that for these kind of independent reasons to do with you know, what, is the, what I th see as the most satisfactory overall metaphysics, I think that there are almost certainly you know, forms of consciousness far outside that. The forms of consciousness that are familiar to us and intelligible to us are one small region of this, this broader yeah. cosmic space so that and actually puts me yeah, go ahead yeah and that's fascinating because again I, i'm a total amateur in this space so i'll probably use the terms in, in imprecise ways but i started out in a more classical sense thinking about sentience being a subset of consciousness so i looked at consciousness mm -hmm. as you know yes a, a some form of subjective awareness but it's often loaded up with other concepts as well planning for the future and a certain level of intellect or creativity or so on. So in that classical sense, I was almost saying, well, in a way, sentience is the morally salient subset of consciousness. Mm -hmm. It's that capacity to have valence states to suffer 
and to flourish. But in the, in a panpsychist context, I wonder if it almost works the other way around, where you can say, okay, no, now consciousness is all pervasive. Maybe sentience is a much narrow concept in the sense that it's the subset of those states that have a valent state, you know, with that sort of concept of a narrow sentientism that is the capacity to suffer, the capacity to flourish in a sense that I guess you or I might recognize as biologically evolved beings. So it's almost flipped it around depending on whether you have a classical view or a, a more broadly panpsychist view. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I go back and forth on whether I think it's suffering and pleasure that's a really crucial thing or mm. desire. Because yeah. something that, that we definitely recognize, I think, with humans is that my moral obligations to you partly out of respecting you know, what you want to do, even if I think that in the end it will make you unhappy. And then some people think desire just follows along from pleasure and displeasure. When we, our capacity to want things is just a consequence of some things making us feel good and other things make us feel bad. Mm. I think other people will say something like the opposite. What comes first is that we can want things and then we, we feel good when we get them and we feel bad when we don't. And other people will say, actually, these are two somewhat separable elements of the psyche and you could have one without the other or vice versa. In which case, I'm inclined to think probably both of them matter. And the ultimate test is going to be going back to putting myself in another being's shoes to the extent that I can. Does putting myself in their shoes give me a reason for or against an action? Is going to track something like does their current mental state involve a, a for or against? Does it involve an evaluation yeah. of some state of affairs or some prospect? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've, you've answered how you resist this already, but one challenge I think that some people see in a panpsychist worldview, one which sees consciousness as all-pervasive, is how can you avoid the situation of someone saying, okay, therefore a carrot and a pig and a human are all just as morally valuable. It flattens the landscape. Even an electron is conscious, therefore everything matters, therefore I can continue having my bacon sandwiches and do what I like. And in a way, it echoes... I think the sort of more classical ecocentric or a more holistic worldview. And I've interviewed some people along these lines as well who've said, oh, look, sentience is too, you know, too narrow. We need to care about plants and rocks and rivers and the ecosystem as Gaia and the world as a whole. And these systems work together in webs and networks of interdependencies and life begets life and life consumes life and humans need to play our part in that. And so I can have my bacon sandwich too. So it seems that in both a sort of panpsychist, super expansive worldview and an ecocentric, holistic worldview that both seem radically generous in terms of granting moral consideration, there's a risk right. it just flattens, it flattens yeah. everything and can excuse anything. Yeah, there's, there's actually, there's a few strands there, if you, if you don't mind me trying to draw them out. No, so of course, of course. The, one is about like particular things that look like they are or are not sentient. And plants are the, the focus, I think, of this debate. Mm. And I've actually been, been reading recently some of the debate that's been arising about plant minds or whether plants are sentient. And with a particular eye to whether plants might be capable of pleasure or displeasure. And I don't have a super settled view at the moment, but I think it is useful to to be like properly attentive to the decentralization of plant minds, the, the fact that people are coming out with these you know, interesting discoveries about what, how the roots are 
exchanging sugars with the fungus that connects them to the other root. And that seems like a, a surprisingly kind of intelligent thing. It's, it's more impressive than what we thought of plants as doing. And the leaves are moving to follow the sun and maybe growing in ways that may be influenced by their learning history. Okay, but there, there doesn't appear to be anywhere in, say, a tree, and I guess the, the focus has largely been on like trees and shrubs and vascular plants, that is putting together what the root is doing and what the leaf is doing. There's nothing like our brain, which is this kind of you know, global assemblage where we can compile sensory data from all the different parts of the body and make a coordinated decision that will take effect in all the different parts of the body. And one thing that means is that we're already building in too much when you talk about a plant or your plants plural, because any given plant can also be viewed as a society, a collection, something like an ecosystem, which I'll get onto in a moment, where if there's sentience, it might be there's root sentience that is as distinct from the leaf sentience as it is from the sentience of the beetle falling in the trunk. Another thing is that you might think that pleasure and displeasure specifically play their most natural role in one of those integrated workspaces. So in my brain, where I've brought together all these different sensory inputs, and I have to make a decision that my whole body will exercise, being able to have some of those sensations feel bad in a general purpose way, in a way that like feels bad for me as a whole, is really useful if I want to compare you know, and balance out different incoming sensory things. Mm-hmm. Be like, does this feel worse than this? Or is this worse than the consequences of this action would be good? And it also seems like it plays a big role in directing my attention. The thing that hurts is the thing that I focus on. You can imagine the the evolutionary rationale for why that may have come into being, because it's useful to go towards good stuff and away from bad stuff. Yeah. But what it looks like plants are doing is that they're not, they don't seem to have attention and they don't seem to have a need to compare or weigh up different stimuli against one another. Mm. What they seem to have is lots of stimulus response pairing, lots of things that a part of the plant does in response to a particular sort of stimulus. Sometimes like cool and neat things, there are lots of plants, it turns out, where they can, I'm going to try to avoid putting this in anthropomorphic ways. When a particular sort of caterpillar chews the leaf, certain chemicals distinctive to its saliva trigger a reaction in the leaf that leads the plant to secrete a little smelly substance that attracts in uh, wasps or, or some predator that will prey on that particular caterpillar. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's calling in a, a carnivore to, to deal with the herbivore. Yeah, so I just think that's neat. But it's amazing. Yeah. This does seem like it's something like an innate response. And it doesn't seem like there's a kind of interweaving of all of the different stimulus response pairs. And so that suggests to me, and I, I'm not sure if I can really back this up, but that suggests to me that the more likely experiential analog is something like the way that when I have a strong habit, I can see my coffee cup and I can reach out and pick it up. And this is a conscious process, not a a reflective or thoughtful one, but it's a process that feels like something. I consciously see the cup and that experience seems to call for a certain response. It pushes me towards the arm movement. And I don't need any of that to feel good or bad in order to motivate me because I'm not weighing it up against other things. I'm not making a, you know, a, a reflective decision. I'm just responding. Yeah. My suspicion then is maybe that's the best model for plant sentience, if there is any, in which case it's not a particularly suffering heavy type of experience. Yeah. Maybe there's still some sort of value there, but I think it's importantly different from the value 
that belongs to, to animals, which do have pleasure and displeasure because they have a nervous system that has to centralize and compare and integrate sensory input because they have a body that moves all as a whole. And so they need to coordinate their whole body movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was one strand of what you said, what I think about plants. The other strand was about holes and parts because mm. there's, there's the animals in the forest, there's the plants in the forest, there's the fungus in the forest, which apparently plays lots of cool roles that we didn't know about. And then there's the forest as a whole, the ecosystem that the, the people you were saying you'd had on the podcast will often talk about as a bearer of moral value in and of mm. itself. So I'm actually inclined to think that, there's, that there doesn't have to be a conflict here between that sort of holism and sentientism, because I don't think there has to be a conflict between the parts of the system being sentient and the system as a whole being sentient, albeit in a different way with a, with a very different structure, mm. you know, much more like what I was saying about plants, where there's no central forum that integrates things. And this is partly to be a segue to a lot of my work to date has been on the metaphysics of part and whole as it applies to consciousness. The idea that a system could be a conscious system, but also have subsystems, parts of it that are also them in themselves conscious. Yeah, because that's a strong theme in panpsychism, isn't it? This idea of combination and yeah, microconsciousnesses and how can they aggregate and still be meaningful at a higher level. Yeah, the the big problem that a lot of people uh, have with panpsychism is they say, look, maybe you can persuade me that there would be some motivation to to postulate micro minds, micro experiences everywhere in in matter. But how does that really help us with human consciousness? Because it's it seems unimaginable for them to all come together. You can't combine minds. You can't put together lots of little minds and get a big one. And some panthers tried to say, maybe I can agree with that, but find a workaround. I prefer to say, actually, yeah, you can. And to examine this, this thought that minds don't combine, that there's something inherently contradictory about the idea of a mind made of other minds, which I think has, can be seen at various points in philosophical history. It's not just about panpsychism. This was something that, for instance, a lot of philosophers have used to argue against materialism. They've tried to argue, look, the mind can't have parts. The soul yeah. isn't like the brain. It's not like a physical thing that's made of lots of little bits put together. It's a, a simple, indivisible, and thus immaterial thing. Descartes makes an argument like that. Avicenna, Plotinus, on some readings, Leibniz. And, and I think it's, it's wrong, but I think it's deeply rooted in the way that we think. And I think that it's, it's not wrong in a kind of shallow or boring way. So I wrote a book called Combining Minds, examining and trying to undermine this thought that minds can't combine. And I, I wasn't able to address the ethical aspects of this as much as I would have liked to, because trust me, like everything I write, it ended up being a bit longer than I had intended. And then the effort was all to, to shrink it down. But so I do want to be able to say, yeah, there's value in a forest. There's value in the way that a forest is put together and structured the way that consciousness integrates and is structured there that's not distinct from or separate or opposed to the value of the animals, perhaps the plants, the insects, the birds, or the, the creatures within it that also have their own smaller but more tightly integrated consciousness. Yeah. So this is basically a way of, of trying to have my cake and eat it too. I'm still working on the paper where I actually show that the cake can be eaten and still had. Yeah. That would be my aspiration. That's fascinating. Thank you. And I think there's another form of sort of commonality in that I tend to take quite a 
strict sentientist line, and I, I will come on to this in a moment, but I also have a sort of more classical view of which entities are sentient, which aren't, which is more, again, the traditional boundary of human and non-human animals, pretty much. And so I do see that all moral worth and ultimately all value does come back to the experiences and maybe the desires and interests of those sentient beings. But that includes a rich appreciation for the ecosystems and the environments we live in for instrumental reasons, because the reason I care about this planet is not because I care about the planet. I'm not that bothered about Mars or Venus or something circling around Alpha Centauri, right? The reason I care about this planet is because of its critical importance to the experiences of all the sentient beings, human and non-human that that live on it. So there, I think there's another commonality where we can say, look, that instrumental importance of the environment that we all share is deeply important. I guess where I think you and I might share a frustration is where people have that much broader, holistic, ecocentric view. But it's really, as one of my previous guests, Carl Johansson, described it, it's really just a veneer for an anthropocentric position where they say, we are humans, we care about all humanity, we are now threatened by environmental crises and climate change. So we're going to say we care about the entire ecosystem, but actually it's really driven by a very narrow human concern. And you can see that in the way that most of those people still carve out most wild animals and most farmed animals from any consideration whatsoever. So it's a sort of a veneer for an anthropocentric view. And I'd argue that's pretty much what most of the modern environmental movement is, frustratingly. There's good elements to it as well, but I don't know about most of the modern environmental movement. I think I'm being harsh. Maybe I can go go back here to to something I was saying about religious and non-religious beliefs earlier on, that often it's it's feelings and relationships that are leading us. And I think people often have rich and deep and, and morally toned feelings about nature, about trees, about forests, about the biosphere in a way that certainly it isn't phenomenologically instrumental. It doesn't feel like, oh, this is a very useful thing. And, and so then they can come up with attempts to explain well, why is that? What is it that I really value and on what basis? And some people might end up in the position that, that you described where you think, actually, the, the biosphere itself, I don't want to say has intrinsic importance. I want to see it as something like a collection of distinct individuals with intrinsic importance and the kind of connective infrastructure has instrumental value in in relation to them. And that might be, that might require them to change how they feel about the biosphere. It might not. They might just say, look, the the attitude that I have towards the biosphere, the love that I have for it is precisely the, you know, I take it to be the appropriate emotional attitude towards something that mingles intrinsic and instrumental and individual and holistic in all of these ways. I don't have to analyze and dissect that, that feeling. And other people might say, no, I, because I want to hold fast to this love for the biosphere and because I think the biosphere is not a sentient being, I'm going to deny that sentience is all that there is, morally speaking. Yeah. And I feel a little lucky that I've ended up maneuvering myself into a, a theoretical position where I don't have to say that. I can say, actually, maybe I, maybe I love the biosphere because on some level I was always recognizing its, its structure as an expression of some sort of sentience that I, that I value. People, yeah. Yeah. philosophy is always playing catch up, really. Philosophy is the advantage of reflective, rational thought is only in its clarity. It's not in its power. If I take a walk outside, I'm doing much more complex computations than in a philosophy room. 
It's just that I'm doing a hundred of them at once. Yeah. So I don't really know what was influencing what. Just to avoid people on the street or to respond to my cat's meows. I'm processing a lot of data. And then I go into the philosophy room and I'm trying to pull out under a microscope. And I'm always playing catch up to try and recapture or re-understand or recapitulate what it was that I was picking up on before. Yeah. So I think yeah. I might have gone on a bit of a, a ramble, maybe on a bit of No, a I like it. And I think you're right. I'm probably being a, a little harsh and a little bit too simplistic when I characterize some aspects of environmental or ecocentric thinking. And I think you're right. The reality is a much more nuanced mix of often very genuinely deeply held values and, and obviously a sea of social norms that we grow up in that teaches us what things are valuable and which aren't. And many of those things in the cold light of day can seem to be quite arbitrary. Yeah. The cold light of day is not always the best light. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I find interesting, and I don't think I could play this through too strongly, like I say, sentientism is itself very neutral about what the nature of sentience and consciousness is. It just says it matters. And I guess my personal view is one that might be, I guess it's quite close to the sort of Keith Frankish illusionist type stance, which says consciousness is real, but the phenomenal consciousness, this sense that there's an ineffable, private, mm. distinct thing that, you know, in some way is separate from the information processing we're doing, that is an illusion. And I don't really like the term illusionism, partly because it implies consciousness isn't real when I think, and I think Keith thinks, and Dennett and others think consciousness is real. They just think it's the information processing we're doing. So I guess my more classical view of what consciousness and sentience is, that it's a class of information processing that evolved in biological animals, probably pre-Cambrian or around then, because it proved evolutionarily useful for an entity to be able to model itself, model the environment, model other agents in the environment. And it was also evolutionarily useful to feel a valence that would push you towards good things and away from bad things in a super simplistic sense. But because it is in that way, just a class of information processing, I don't think it's necessarily restricted to biological entities. It's just those are the only ones that happen to have felt those deterministic drives that would create it. But in concept, I could imagine we could create artificial sentience. I don't think it would happen accidentally. I think we'd actually have to design it in or have some you know, evolutionary sort of design. So I guess that's my current personal stance. And many other sentientists disagree with me and will agree with you that it's something more panpsychist. But at the same time, there's still surprising areas of commonality, I think, in that way of thinking and a panpsychist way of thinking. Because in a sense, when I say, you know, consciousness just is that class of information processing, I'm saying they're not distinct. That just, it is intrinsic to that class of information processing in the same way as a panpsychist view is saying that consciousness in a way is intrinsic with all information processing. And I think we, we also share this sense that there isn't, you know, a clearly defined binary boundary around what we're talking about. One, because panpsychism sees sentience everywhere, but because I see sentience as a class of information processing, that, does, that means there probably isn't a really crisp boundary you can define to say this type of information processing is sentient and this one isn't, because in a sense, it's not a distinct, clearly defined characteristic. So I find it interesting how in your worldview and my worldview, which you might think of as quite radically different about what consciousness and sentience is, there's still quite a lot of commonality in the way it leads you to think about the world and I guess the moral stance you might take. I don't know if that's naively optimistic about how much we might have in common. 
I think that's right. I'm actually, I've been working on a, a paper called Dinettian Panpsychism, trying to draw out some of these slightly surprising convergences between the very sort of deflationary views where consciousness, oh, it's everyone who thinks it's a big deal is subject to an illusion. There's really nothing there but information processing. And the panpsychist view that actually it is a big deal, but when you really think about what that means, there's, oh, this is just what information processing is. So, yeah, and I, I think the... In a lot of practical respects, these two views are liable to have more in common than either does with like a, a dualistic view where there's, there's some things that are conscious and there's like a big metaphysical difference between those and the other things that there's yeah. you know, souls in, implanted in some beings and, and other animals are just soulless automata. Yeah, illusionism is tricky to talk about because a lot of it is you're struggling with the words you're using because people like Keith, I think, will say, oh, yeah, consciousness subscript one is an illusion. It's not real. Consciousness subscript two, now that is real. I've, obviously, I believe in that. Um, and then they'll try to explain that anything that anyone else thought was problematic or, or puzzling or, or metaphysically mysterious, that's based on them having all these bad ideas about consciousness one, based on as a result of actually having consciousness two, and their opponents like me are going to say, no, the thing that I'm talking about, the thing that all of us are intimately acquainted with is, is what you are describing as consciousness one, and the thing that you're saying doesn't exist. But maybe there's this other thing that you call consciousness two, but as defined, there's nothing intrinsically subjective about that. That's just a sort of information processing, and I could, could imagine a being having that, but not feeling anything. So that seems like it's left out something about my experience. Well, I'm looking yeah, forward to your, I, that, sounds I like a fascinating, that, in, yeah, that, that sounds like a fascinating paper on the sort of the commonalities and the themes between them, because I, I, it does feel that there are some threads that draw things, draw some of these things back together again. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that I sometimes try to ask if I didn't have this, if I didn't believe this view that I have, how would that affect my other views? Mm. And I think it's interesting sometimes when you're in a group of people who have, who have a view in common to try and figure out, okay, what would your second choice have been? So I suspect if I weren't a pantheist, I might well be a materialist of some fairly kind of aggressive sort. I definitely, I, I sometimes talk with other panpsychists, who I think would, would definitely be something like a, a dualist if they weren't panpsychists. Yeah. So yeah. I think, that's, I think that's absolutely fascinating because I think... <laughs> There are different flavors of ways you can take panpsychism, and some of them do feel like they're drawn a little bit more back into the sort of mysticism or the sort of explanation of the gap. And people talk about in a similar context of a life essence or a soul. And I think there are some panpsychists that are drawn to that way of thinking. It's ineffable, you know, somehow distinct from material, the material world. But there are other perspectives, I think, like yours, which are more aligned with quite strongly naturalistic materialistic worldview as well so that's yeah that's fascinating yeah, that's my aim yeah yeah sounds good so one of the other things that i find fascinating is as we come on to talk about the future one of the themes that comes through lots of these conversations is that often technical solutions are to make the world a better place aren't necessarily as hard as some people might think the problem often is one of human psychology and social norms and inertia both intellectually and morally and one of my particular bugbears is with people who, I guess, focus professionally in these worlds. So I, I completely understand, partly because I was one of these people for a long, long while, 
why you know, the average person has a busy life. They have pressure on them. Some even have survival concerns. It's very hard to expect the average human around the globe to do the hard moral work of thinking through stuff like consideration for non-humans and the implications of animal farming or wild animal suffering, right? It's understandable. We can have compassion for those people and understand why they haven't done that work. I find myself less forgiving of moral philosophers, philosophers in general, public intellectuals, leading humanists, and others who, in many cases, are brilliant people whose intellects will put mine in the shade, but they still seem to have some really strong blockers in their thinking. It's almost like kryptonite that stops them being able to break through either see blind spots or address blind spots. And they seem almost as trapped by social norms as you know, anybody on the street. And that, that partly links through to the two themes that we've been talking about here today, because one of those for many people is religious and supernatural worldviews, where some people who are relentlessly naturalistic in their day-to-day lives and in their professional fields will still maintain a somewhat arbitrary set of supernatural beliefs. But there's also something about this scope of moral consideration as well, obviously, clearly around this default assumption that only humans matter. And that's how most people around the planet seem to think, even professional philosophers. So I'm interested in the field you're in. How do you feel about philosophy as a field? Because from an, as, as an outsider, mm. it feels to me that most of the world of philosophy, particularly moral philosophy, has sort of assumed that only humans matter and is now working on lots of interesting detailed trolley problems. But not many people go back to assess that foundational question of where should we set our moral boundary in that, I guess, the average moral philosopher doesn't seem to be any more generous in their moral scope of considerability than the average human. (laughs) That's a long rant, but I'm interested in your views on that bugbear. Yeah, I will say that I feel like there are a lot of vegan philosophers. I definitely feel like I've encountered a higher statistical rate of vegetarianism and veganism in philosophy than in my broader social life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I guess part of what I feel like is worth having in mind here is that when you're an intellectual worker, I think it's very useful. It's almost in some ways essential to the, the job to be able to disconnect the, the things you're thinking about from the rest of your, your life. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that you can entertain ideas that don't seem to make sense at first and explore them and spend lots of time thinking through their implications um, so that you can hopefully change your mind when people give you good reasons to, although that's always more an aspiration than a reality. <laughs> yeah. So that you can be you know, open, for instance, to all of these different possibilities that you want to leave open. You t- you've talked a lot about having a pluralistic conception of sentientism, right? Because you want to push one particular idea, you're studiously not building in what you think about all these other ideas. And so I think all of that kind of makes it natural to for there to be a bit of a filter between your professionally entertained ideas and your everyday life. And I think that's, that's in some ways valuable because otherwise it would go both ways. And yeah. you're, I don't want to say you're boring everyday life. Your assumptions would stomp all over the, the fine philosophical detail of teasing out well, what actually would this imply even if we didn't think this and so on. I think also, as, I was, as I've come back to, reasoning is, reasoning is one thing and, and like your feelings and relationships a different thing and they're often more powerful at determining how you actually behave. There have been no shortage of like sexual harassment cases where like 
a great ethicist who's written about respecting people and cultivating justice and equality turns out to have yeah. not acted on that at all. And I, I think the history of like virtually all progressive movements is full of, of people who endorse high sounding ideas, but need a push when it comes to actually acting on it. Yeah. And I think this is part of the reason why advocating for animals and, and why like animal liberation is really hard is that there's there's no one who both can advocate and has a self-interested stake in it. A lot of social struggles for, for greater freedom and equality have been driven by the group that has been oppressed. Animals aren't able to do that. And so it does have to be this uh, indirect thing. It's, it's humans advocating for animals out of charity rather than animals advocating for themselves with humans in, in solidarity. Yeah, And that, I think, is going to make it harder to make substantial progress on that score, or at least slower. Yeah. And it's also difficult because one of my previous guests said that as soon as you're an activist, you've lost a connection with your audience because all of a sudden your value set, what matters to you, what is important, it is all of a sudden radically different from the people you're trying to communicate with. And in a way, in the animal advocacy space, that is the sort of the central challenge because everyone who sees the reality of current human practice and sees the horror of that is so deeply emotionally affected and driven that leads to the stereotype of preachy vegan and i am one too many days of the week right but we but at the same time we know that isn't necessarily the most effective way of communicating yeah. given the emotional resonance and the tribal connections and the traditions and the webs of value that you talked about before and in a way that that leads us on to the final question which is how do we see the future and for some people that mm. is a story about what's the a sort of utopian future we might be able to get to if we can work through some of these challenges of human psychology and get to a more compassionate, you know, more naturalistic future. But it also links into some of these challenges about programs of change and advocacy and you know, making stuff happen to make the world better for everybody. So it's a super broad question, but I don't know where you'd go from there about how you think about the future and ways of making it better. Yeah, I have mixed and complex feelings about the future. Because on the one hand, like there's a strand of optimism. I do think that human society is getting better in its understanding of justice and its understanding of how to, to live with each other. I think that's facilitated by, but not determined by, technological progress that enables higher standards of living and greater informational connection. And so I do, I'm optimistic about human progress in the long run. Thing is, we don't necessarily have the long run because we've got this this second strand of pessimism about the environment we've been we've been enjoying for the as i see it for the last couple of hundred years a windfall of very easily available energy with costs that are you know only going to be born now-ish so i feel like it depends on this like question of timing humans manage to get it together to like solve collective action problems before environmental degradation becomes so severe that it cuts away the, the social infrastructure that would allow people to do that. If we get to the point where you can only drink water if you have forcibly excluded five other people from doing it, but like our prospects for solving collective action problems become, become a lot worse. But hopefully if we can solve some of those problems now, we won't get to that point with the, the water shortages and, and so on. And honestly, I was more optimistic about this maybe like 10 or 15 years ago. I, I feel like 
right-wing authoritarianism is on the rise globally. It has been experiencing uh, a resurgence. I was very glad to see Netanyahu leave office a few days ago. Very glad to see Donald Trump leave office a little before that. I'm waiting for something to be glad about in British politics. And, and I don't think that's like necessarily like setting the direction for the really long term. I do feel like this we are replaying a lot of early 20th century history of a period of unrestrained global capitalist optimism gives rise to a catastrophic financial collapse, recession or depression. And in that context, simmering nationalistic sentiment and bigoted reactionary sentiment against social progress for women, for sexual minorities, for racial groups coalesces into you know, something like a, a potentially fascist movement. In the early 20th century, in the end, it was defeated. But we went through hell to get to that. And I really hope that we don't have to go through hell again, especially I really hope that we don't have to go through like fascist hell right when global warming is hitting us the hardest. Yeah. What do I see for the future? I genuinely am not sure. I hope that the struggle against reaction and for human progress will prevail, but it is not looking like uh, an easy or straightforward fight at the moment. Yeah, I think you framed that beautifully. And in a way, as you say, these are old struggles, right? There's the, there's, and you can even trace it back to our sort of pre-human proto-morality, right? There's the, the, there's the cohesion, there's the kin, there's the value of cooperating, and then there's the tribalism and there's the aggression and there's the competition. And those, I guess those are themes that run through. And I share your long-term optimism, because I think, again, if you look back over human history, we have progressed. It's been halting. It's imperfect. There are still catastrophic problems and major risks facing us. But overall, given the right amount of time, we've shown our ability to do better, but we just need to make sure we have enough time to achieve that. And there's plenty of risk around us and not giving yeah, us I that mean, space. I, I, I want to, to maybe just caveat that with it's not like all of the problems are are just like relics of the past. I mean, capitalism is a new system, and it, it's in some ways an improvement on pre-capitalist economic systems. But it mm. also has a potential for like global control and subsuming and integrating all of our social functions within itself, and that is novel and is potentially novel in its destructiveness. Likewise, you know, nationalism is. Is in many ways a new phenomenon, it's a modern phenomenon that yeah, draws on long-standing human tendencies towards affiliations and outgroups, but it also gives them a distinctively novel expression. And you know, the same is true of fascism. And now we have you know fucking social media algorithms, which <laughs> our you know evolutionary ancestors very much did not have to deal with. And and I guess I I also yeah I say that partly because I think it's I think there's always a bit of a risk of becoming too enamored with the, the idea of, of progress and mm. not seeing when modern scientific ideologies are being used to deepen and justify oppression. Yeah. So the eugenics, for instance, has been you know, thoroughly discredited by the event of the 20th century, but they followed on from a period in which many leading progressive figure, the intellectuals who would probably have been coming on the equivalent of this podcast were yeah. talking about, oh yeah, eugenics is the, the, the modern scientific way to solve all of our old problems. 
And as it happened, that largely involved things like sterilizing members of ethnic minorities or people with disabilities or schemes of education where you extract people from supposedly backward cultures and force them into a supposedly modern school system. And in in Canada, which I have some ties to, we've recently been seeing the the uncovering of these mass graves where the very modern ambitions of the residential school system led to the death of children on a a remarkably large and horrifying scale. So I, I think it's dangerous to, you know, I say that I do believe in progress, but I think it's dangerous to to put one's faith in progress per se. Yeah. I think we have to be struggling for empathy, for equality, for liberation, and listening to the people who I think the people to listen to are the people who are being oppressed at the moment. Indigenous yeah. people, people of color, people with disabilities, women, sexual minorities, people who are victims of intersectional oppression have a better insight often than you know, intellectuals with big, big claims for progress. Yeah, I think that's a deeply important caution. Yeah, and I think the other theme to to wrap up is that you, I think you're absolutely right. One side of it might be naturalism and science and rationality and you know a, a better understanding of the world, but that by itself can be deeply dangerous if you don't also have a rich, broad, generous empathy and compassion, and ideally a compassion for all of the groups you mentioned and ultimately all beings that are capable of experiencing suffering or all, all of that suffering should matter. And it's that combination that I think is deeply important. Either by itself is not sufficient. So, yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much yeah, for spending so much time with me. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been a real uh, no pleasure. Problem. This has been really interesting. What's the best way of people following you, um, learning more about your oh, work um, and, and uh, picking up your new paper when you write the, the Donetian well, analysis? So I, I have a website, LukeRoloffs.com. I have a blog that is called MajesticEquality.wordpress.com. After the, the famous line, the law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, beg in the streets and, and steal bread. Trying to express this, this sense of like, I'm committed to high ideals, but I also want to be very aware that high ideals can easily be very empty if they're not informed by attention to people's concrete social position. But my, my website, lukevelos.com, has links to, to my blog and to other places online where I've got most of my work. So that's probably the, the best place. I, I don't have that much of a social media presence. I'm, I think, lagging behind the curve a bit because I'm always, I don't know, I know lots of people on Twitter and they're always complaining about how bad Twitter is for their mental health. So <laughs> They're I guess, not really selling it to well, you. <laughs> Yeah, I read Twitter, but I'm not going to put myself onto it. Yeah, yeah, that's probably fairly wise. I can't resist the pull sometimes, but yeah. that's great. And I'll include links to your website and your blog in the show okay, notes, of sure. course, so people can click through. But it's been uh, uh, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you again. It's been a yeah, pleasure. It's been, it's been a great time. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, and it's and, great uh, to have you, as I say, on our wall and in our Facebook group as well. It's great to have you as part of the community. Indeed. Thank you. It's a very nice wall to be on. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?